Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Aristides. It is said that Hyperbolus was ostracized for the following reason. Alcibiades and Nicias had the greatest power in the state, and were at odds. Accordingly, when the people were about to exercise the ostracism, and were clearly going to vote against one or the other of these two men, they came to terms with one another, united their opposing factions, and effected the ostracism of Hyperbolus. The people were incensed at this, for they felt that the institution had been insulted and abused, and so they abandoned it utterly and put an end to it. The method of procedure, to give a general outline, was as follows. Each voter took an ostracon or potsherd, wrote on it the name of that citizen whom he wished to remove from the city, and brought it to a place in the agora which was all fenced about with railings. The archons first counted the total number of ostraca cast, for if the voters were less than six thousand, the ostracism was void. Then they separated the names, and the man who had received the most votes they proclaimed banished for ten years, with the right to enjoy the income from his property. Now at the time of which I was speaking, as the voters were inscribing their ostraca, it is said that an unlettered and utterly boorish fellow handed his ostracon to Aristides, whom he took to be one of the ordinary crowd, and asked him to write Aristides on it. He, astonished, asked the man what possible wrong Aristides had done him. None whatever, was the answer. I don't even know the fellow, but I am tired of hearing him everywhere called the just. On hearing this, Aristides made no answer, but he wrote his name on the ostracon and handed it back. Finally, as he was departing the city, he lifted up his hands to heaven and prayed, a prayer the opposite, as it seems, of that which Achilles made, that no crisis might overtake the Athenians, which should compel the people to remember Aristides. But in the third year thereafter, when Xerxes was marching through Thessaly and Boeotia against Attica, they repealed their law of ostracism, and voted that those who had been sent away under it might return. The chief reason for this was their fear of Aristides, lest he attach himself to the enemy's cause, and corrupt and pervert many of his fellow citizens to the side of the barbarian. But they much misjudged the man. Even before this decree of theirs, he was ever inciting and urging the Hellenes to win their freedom and after it was passed, when Themistocles was general with sole powers, he assisted him in every undertaking and counsel, although he thereby, for the sake of the general safety, 
made his chiefest foe the most famous of men. Thus, when Eurybiades wished to abandon Salamis, but the barbarian triremes putting out by night had encompassed the strait where he lay round about, and had beset the islands therein, and no Helene knew of this encompassment, Aristides came over to them from Aegina, venturously sailing through the enemy's ships. He went at once by night to the tent of Themistocles, and called him forth alone. O Themistocles, said he, if we are wise, we shall at last lay aside our vain and puerile contention, and begin a salutary and honourable rivalry with one another in emulous struggles to save Hellas, thou as commanding general, I as assistant counsellor, since at the very outset I learned that thou art the only one who has adopted the best policy, urging, as thou dost, to fight a decisive sea-fight here in the narrows as soon as may be. And though thine allies oppose thee, thy foes would seem to assist thee, for the sea round about and behind us is already filled with hostile ships, so that even our unwilling ones must now of necessity be brave men and fight. Indeed, no way of escape is left. To this the Mystocles replied, I should not have wished, O Aristides, to find thee superior to me here, but I shall try to emulate thy fair beginning, and to surpass thee in my actions. At the same time he told Aristides of the trick that he had contrived against the barbarian, and entreated him to show Eurybiades convincingly, inasmuch as he had the greater credit with that commander, that there was no safety except in a sea-fight. So it happened in the council of generals that Cleocritus the Corinthian declared to Themistocles that Aristides also was opposed to his plan, since he, though present, held his peace. Aristides at once replied that he would not have held his peace had not Themistocles counselled for the best, but as it was, he kept quiet, not out of any good will to the man, but because he approved of his plan. While the captains of the Hellenes were acting on this plan, Aristides noticed that Sitalia, a small island lying in the straits in front of Salamis, was full of the enemy. He therefore embarked in small boats the most ardent and the most warlike of the citizens, made a landing on Sitalia, joined battle with the barbarians, and slew them all, save the few conspicuous men who were taken alive. Among these were three sons of the king's sister, Sandausi, whom he straightway sent to Themistocles. And it is said that, in obedience to some oracle or other, and at the bidding of Euphrantides the seer, they were sacrificed to Dionysus Carnivorous. Then Aristides lined the islets all round with his hoplites, and lay in wait for any who should be cast up there, that no friend might perish, and no foe escape. For the greatest crowding of the ships, and the most strenuous part of the battle seems to have been in this region. 
and for this reason a trophy was erected on Sitalaya. After the battle, Themistocles, by way of sounding Aristides, said that the deed they had now performed was a noble one, but a greater still remained, and that was to capture Asia in Europe by sailing up to the Hellespont as fast as they could and cutting in twain the bridges there. But Aristides cried out with a loud voice and bade him abandon the proposal and seek rather with all diligence how they might most speedily expel the Mede from Hellas, lest, being shut in and unable to make his escape, from sheer necessity he throw this vast force of his upon the defensive. So Themistocles sent once more the eunuch Arneses, a prisoner of war, bidding him tell the king that the Hellenes had actually set out on a voyage to attack the bridges, but that he, Themistocles, had succeeded in turning them back, wishing to save the king. At this Xerxes grew exceeding fearful, and hurried straight to the Hellespont. But Mardonius, with the flower of the army, to the number of three hundred thousand men, was left behind. He was a formidable adversary, and because his confidence in his infantry was strong, he wrote threateningly to the Hellenes, saying, Ye have conquered with your maritime timbers landsmen who know not how to ply the oar. But now broad is the land of Thessaly, and fair the plain of Boeotia for brave horsemen and men-at-arms to contend in. But to the Athenians he sent separate letters and proposals from the king, who promised to rebuild their city, give them much money, and make them lords of the Hellenes, if only they would cease fighting against him. When the Lacedaemonians learned this, they took fright, and sent an embassy to Athens, begging the Athenians to dispatch their wives and children to Sparta, and to accept from her a support for their aged and infirm. For great was the distress among the people, since it had so recently lost both land and city. However, after listening to the embassy, on motion of Aristides, they answered with an admirable answer, declaring that they could be tolerant with their foes for supposing that everything was to be bought for wealth and money, since their foes could conceive of nothing higher than these things. But they were indignant at the Lacedaemonians for having an eye only to the penury and indigence that now reigned at Athens, and for being so unmindful of the valour and ambition of the Athenians as to exhort them to contend for Hellas merely to win their rations. When Aristides had made this motion and had introduced the waiting embassies into the assembly, he bade the Lacedaemonians tell their people that there was not bulk of gold above or below ground, so large that the Athenians would take it in payment for the freedom of the Hellenes, and to the messengers of Mardonius he said, pointing to the sun, As long as yonder sun journeys his appointed journey, so long will the Athenians wage war against the Persians in behalf of the land which has been ravaged by them, and of the temples which they have defiled and consumed with fire. Still further, 
he made a motion that the priests should solemnly curse all who came to a parley with the Medes or forsook the alliance of the Hellenes. When Mardonius for the second time invaded Attica, again the people crossed over to Salamis. Then Aristides, who had been sent as envoy to Lacedaemon, inveighed against their sluggishness and indifference, in that they had once more abandoned Athens to the barbarian, and demanded that they go to the aid of what was still left of Hellas. On hearing this, the Ephors, as long as it was day, publicly disported themselves in easy-going festival fashion, for it was their festival of the Hyacinthia. But in the night they selected five thousand Spartans, each of whom had seven helots to attend upon him, and sent them forth without the knowledge of the Athenians. So when Aristides came before them with renewed invectives, they laughed, and said he was but a sleepy babbler, for that their army was already in Arcadia on its march against the strangers. They called the Persians strangers. But Aristides declared they were jesting out of all season, for as much as they were deceiving their friends instead of their enemies. This is the way Idomeneus tells the story. But in the decree which Aristides caused to be passed, he himself is not named as envoy, but Simon, Xanthippus, and Myronides. Having been elected general with sole powers in view of the expected battle, he came to Plataea at the head of 8,000 Athenian hoplites. There Pausanias also, the commander-in-chief of the whole Hellenic army, joined him with his Spartans, and the forces of the rest of the Hellenes kept streaming up. Now, generally speaking, there was no limit to the encampment of the barbarians as it lay stretched out along the river Asopus, so vast was it, but round their baggage trains and chief headquarters they built a quadrangular wall whereof each side was ten stadia in length. To Pausanias and all the Hellenes under him, Tissaminus the Elian made prophecy and foretold victory for them if they acted on the defensive and did not advance to the attack. But Aristides sent to Delphi and received from the god response that the Athenians would be superior to their foes if they made vows to Zeus, Scytheronian Hera, Pan, and the Sphragitic nymphs, paid sacrifices to the heroes Andocrates, Leucon, Pisandrus, Democrates, Hypsion, Actaeon, and Polyidus, and if they sustained the peril of battle on their own soil in the plain of Eleusinian Demeter and Cora. When this oracle was reported to Aristides, it perplexed him greatly. The heroes to whom he was to sacrifice were, it was true, ancient dignitaries of the Plataeans, and the cave of the Sragitic nymphs was on one of the peaks of Cytheron, facing the summer sunsets, and in it there was also an oracle in former days, as they say, and many of the natives were possessed of the oracular power, and these were called Nympholepii, or nymph-possessed. 
but the plain of Eleusinian Demeter, and the promise of victory to the Athenians if they fought the battle in their own territory, called them back, as it were, to Attica, and changed the seat of war. At this time the general of the Plataeans, Arimnestus, had a dream in which he thought he was accosted by Zeus the saviour, and asked what the Hellenes had decided to do, and replied, On the morrow, my lord, we are going to lead our army back to Eleusis, and fight out our issue with the barbarians there, in accordance with the Pythian oracle. Then the gods said they were entirely in error, for the Pythian oracle's places were there in the neighbourhood of Plataea, and if they sought them they would surely find them. All this was made so vivid to Arimnestus that as soon as he awoke he summoned the oldest and most experienced of his fellow citizens. By conference and investigations with these, he discovered that near Hisii, at the foot of Mount Cithaeron, there was a very ancient temple bearing the names of Eleusinian Demeter and Cora. Straightway then he took Aristides and led him to the spot. They found that it was naturally very well suited to the array of infantry against a force that was superior in cavalry, since the spurs of Cithaeron made the edges of the plain adjoining the temple unfit for horsemen. There too was the shrine of the hero Andocrates hard by, enveloped in a grove of dense and shady trees. And besides, that the oracle might leave no rift in the hope of victory, the Plataeans voted, on motion of Arimnestus, to remove the boundaries of Plataea on the side toward Attica, and to give this territory to the Athenians, that so they might contend in defence of Hellas on their own soil in accordance with the oracle. This munificence of the Plataeans became so celebrated that Alexander, many years afterwards, when he was now king of Asia, built the walls of Plataea, and had proclamation made by Herald at the Olympic Games that the king bestowed this grace upon the Plataeans in return for their bravery and magnanimity in freely bestowing their territory upon the Hellenes in the Median War, and so showing themselves most zealous of all. Now with the Athenians the men of Tegea came to strife regarding their position in the line. They claimed that, as had always been the case, since the Lacedaemonians held the right wing, they themselves should hold the left, and in support of their claim they sounded loudly the praises of their ancestors. The Athenians were incensed, and Aristides came forward and made this speech. To argue with the men of Tegea about noble birth and bravery, there is surely no time now. But we declare to you, O Spartans, and to the rest of the Hellenes, that valour is not taken away from a man, nor is it given him, by his position in the line. Whatsoever post ye shall assign to us, we will endeavour to maintain and adorn it, and so bring no disgrace upon the contests we have made before. We are come not to quarrel with our allies, but to do battle with our foes, not to heap praises on our fathers, 
but to show ourselves brave men in the service of Hellas. It is this contest which will show how much any city or captain or private soldier is worth to Hellas. On hearing this, the councillors and leaders declared for the Athenians and assigned to them the other wing. While Hellas was thus in suspense, and Athens especially in danger, certain men of that city who were of prominent families and large wealth, but had been impoverished by the war, saw that with their riches all their influence in the city and their reputation had departed, while other men now had the honours and offices. They therefore met together secretly at a certain house in Plataea, and conspired to overthrow the democracy, or, if their plans did not succeed, to injure the general cause and betray it to the barbarians. Such was the agitation in the camp, and many had already been corrupted, when Aristides got wind of the matter, and, fearful of the crisis that favoured the plot, determined not to leave the matter in neglect, nor yet to bring it wholly to the light, since it could not be known how many would be implicated by a test which was based on justice rather than expediency. Accordingly, he arrested some eight or so of the many conspirators. Two of these, against whom the charge was first formally brought, and who were really the most guilty ones, Aeschines of Lamptry and Agesias of Acani, fled the camp. The rest he released, affording thus an opportunity for encouragement and repentance to those who still thought they had escaped detection, and suggested to them that the war was a great tribunal for their acquittal from the charges made against them, provided they took sincere and righteous counsel in behalf of their country. After this, Mardonius made trial of the Hellenes with that arm of his service in which he thought himself most superior. He dispatched all his cavalry against them as they lay encamped at the foot of Cytheron, in positions that were rugged and rocky, all except the Megarians. These, to the number of three thousand, were encamped the rather in open plain. For this reason they suffered severely at the hands of the cavalry, which poured in tides against them, and found access to them on every side. Accordingly they sent a messenger in haste to Pausanias, bidding him come to their aid, since they were unable of themselves to withstand the host of the barbarians. Pausanias, on hearing this, and seeing at once that the camp of the Megarians was as good as hidden from view by the multitude of the enemy's javelins and arrows, and that its defenders were huddled together in narrow quarters, on his own part had no way of rendering them aid against horsemen, since his phalanx of Spartans was full-armoured and slow of movement. But to the rest of the generals and captains of the Hellenes who were about him, he proposed, in order to stir up their valour and ambition, that some of them should volunteer to make contention for the succour of the Megarians. The rest all hesitated, but Aristides, in behalf of the Athenians, undertook the task, 
and dispatched his most zealous captain, Olympiodorus, with the three hundred picked men of his command, and archers mingled with them. These quickly arrayed themselves and advanced to the attack on the run. Mazistius, the commander of the barbarian cavalry, a man of wonderful prowess and of surpassing stature and beauty of person, saw them coming, and at once wheeled his horse to face them and charged down upon them. Then there was a mighty struggle between those who withstood and those who made the charge, since both regarded this as a test of the whole issue between them. Presently the horse of Mazistius was hit with an arrow and threw his rider, who lay where he fell unable to raise himself, so heavy was his armour, and yet he was no easy prey to the Athenians, though they pressed upon him and smote him, for not only his chest and head, but also his limbs were encased in gold and bronze and iron. But at last, with the spike of a javelin, through the eye-hole of his helmet, he was smitten to the death, and the rest of the Persians abandoned his body and fled. The magnitude of their success was known to the Hellenes not from the multitude of those they slew, for few had fallen, but from the grief of the barbarians. For they shore their own hair in tribute to Mazistius, and that of their horses and mules, and filled the plain with their wailing cries. They felt that they had lost a man who, after Mardonius himself, was by far the first in valour and authority.